Hey, welcome to day 353 of Journey Through Scripture. Today we're going to be in Ezra chapter 4 verse 6 through the end of chapter 5, and then Psalm 145, and then Revelation chapter 11. Okay, so um, we saw yesterday the beginnings of animosity between the uh, the returned exiles to the land of Yehud and the people who had lived in the land for some time now. And um, not I'm not going to rehearse the, the drama that instigated that, uh, but I will remind you uh, that that resulted in the people of the land kind of turning against the uh, the narrow-minded, monotheistic um, returned exiles to Judah who are trying to do everything as right as possible and not end up in the same kind of situation, right? So if they see syncretism early on, right, the incorporation of other gods into the worship of the Lord, uh, that's not going to be a good thing. They know how that's going to end up. So um, so the people of the land, of course, are very offended at this, and um, they end up, uh, you know, bribing and uh, kind of using political influence to make things difficult for the people uh, who are now living in Yehud, uh, the Jewish people there. And we left off yesterday with it telling us that this persisted for the remainder of the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, the king of Persia. And just to give you another little rundown of this succession of kings that we're talking about here— so Cyrus is going to reign as king from 539 to 530. And then after that, uh, Cambyses II will reign, and his reign will be from 530 to 522. Then there's a little incident where the throne is kind of contested, but after Cambyses II, essentially Darius I comes on the throne in 522. And um, so the work is stopped, in about 536, okay, so that's during the reign of Cyrus, that's what these people we read about yesterday did, and it resumes in about 520, which is during the reign of Darius. As we will be reminded today in the reading, um, they uh, this is about the time that we, we see Haggai and Zechariah come on the scene, and they're, you know, encouraging uh, the rebuilding of the temple and all of that, but that doesn't mean that the animosity has gone away, and it stirs back up during the reign of Ahasuerus. This is this would be King Xerxes, as he's also known. I've noted the differences in names before. Um, and so in the beginning of his reign, they write an accusation also against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. But um, And that's the first verse of today's reading, Ezra 4.6. Uh, probably an interesting thing to mention here is that the word there for accusation is sitna, which is uh, a, a cognate word to what we have seen, Satan, the accuser. So uh, uh, a fun factoid there about that verse. Other fun factoid about that verse is that that kind of is the only mention of the opposition under Ahasuerus, Xerxes, that we get here. Of course, this is the king that Esther, um, uh, whom Esther ended up marrying, um, but that's not all we're going to see of this. So what I mean by that is that there's an interesting thing that kind of goes in here in the structure and the chronology of what's of of the way this is laid out. 
So the transition from verse 6 to verse 7 seems pretty smooth, right? So you've got Ahasuerus, and then you've got his successor, Artaxerxes, and the complaint that's made during Artaxerxes' reign. So they're writing all kinds of complaints, basically, uh, to all these different Persian kings. And we're told all about like what they wrote to Artaxerxes in order to get him on their side. And that just seems like a straightforward chronological telling. Uh, but then when you get to the end of the chapter, when you get to uh, verse 24, then the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped and it ceased until the second reign of Darius, king of Persia. It's like, wait, what's going on here? Because Darius has already reigned, right? So again, the, the order of secession is Darius, Xerxes, or I'm sorry, let's use the biblical terms, uh, Darius, Ahasuerus, and then Artaxerxes, okay? But now here it's saying that the cessation of the work that was that that uh, Artaxerxes um, uh, affected, okay, ended on the second year of the reign of Darius. And it's tempting to be like, ah, well, that's that of course is Darius II. But no, because note how at the beginning of chapter five, it says that the prophets Haggai and Zechariah prophesied to the Jews who were in Jerusalem at that time. So that is definitely the first Darius. Um, so what exactly is going on here? I mean, it, it already has appeared that the writer, the writers of Ezra understand what the line of succession is, what king comes after what. And um, this is actually a very interesting uh, structural device that we have here in Ezra. And this is something that was identified by um, a, a biblical scholar named Shemar Yahu Talman, and it is called resumptive repetition. So basically what you have is the same phrase uh, repeated. Now, one is in Hebrew and the other is in Aramaic, but again, the phraseology is almost identical, notwithstanding the differences between Hebrew and Aramaic. So uh, notice how chapter 4, verse 5, our last verse from yesterday, says, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Okay, And then if you go down to the final verse of chapter 4, it says, um, again, until the second year of Darius, king of Persia. And the, the only difference there is that it specifies the second year of Darius, king of Persia. And this is a literary device that rewinds the tape, okay? So you, you play the timeline forward, and then the repetition of that phrase brings you back to the time where you left off. So let's just... Let's just uh, kind of go straight forward, and we'll see we'll see that working here, okay? So we begin in verse 7 with the days of Artaxerxes, and we hear all about the guys who uh, write to him, uh, write to the king, and they write in Aramaic, which um, is a, another one of these portions of the Hebrew Bible that is in Aramaic, okay? So that's going to be chapter uh, 4, verse 8 here through chapter 6, verse 18, all in Aramaic. There's another Aramaic section of Ezra, which is um, Artaxerxes' uh, letter to Ezra in chapter 7, verse 12, through verse 26. But, you know, you get the letter here. And essentially what they're doing is, uh, it, 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 first of all, it identifies where they're, where they're from, right? Because they've been repopulated there. 
And so it tells us that they are um, from Erech, from Babylon, um, from Susa, that would be the capital of Elam, and um, other nations, and that they attribute their um, the, the, the time that they were brought in was during uh, the reign of a man named the Noble Osnapper. <laughs> I love that name here. That's the biblical way of saying Ashurbanipal, who is a, um, uh, a pretty well-known As- uh, Assyrian king who reigned from 669 to 631. And, um, and they, he's the one who resettled them there, these guys who are complaining against uh, the, the Jewish people. And uh, notice here that you have, I think this is the first reference in the Bible that we've seen so far. I could be wrong, but I think uh, they, he re- resettled them into what is now the province beyond the river. Uh, in Hebrew, it is, a, or uh, in the Aramaic, it is Avar Nacharah, um, also known as Abir Nari, beyond the river. And this is the entire satrapy, the entire you know region under Persian rule encompassing basically the entire Levant west of the Euphrates. So you've got Yehud as part of the province beyond the river, or we might say the satrap beyond the river, satrapy beyond the river. Uh, but Yehud is there, Samaria is there, Idumea, right, which was what became of Edom, uh, Palestine. And uh, so, uh, you know, what you need to know about these Jewish people, Artaxerxes, great king, is that this is a they're rebuilding this city and apparently Cyrus was cool with this but um but you need to know that this is a historically rebellious and wicked city all right and they are working on the walls they're working on the foundations and um if this city is rebuilt and the walls are finished they're not going to pay tribute to you or custom or toll and the royal revenue will be impaired so, you know, tell them something the king's really going to care about, right? And, um, and you know, we eat the salt of the king's palace. In other words, we benefit from this relationship, and we could would not bear to see the king's dishonor. Of course, we know what their motives are. They've been slighted by the religious um, strictness of the Jewish people who have returned. Um, and so, you know, search your records, search your books— and you will find that this is indeed a rebellious city, hurtful to kings and provinces, meaning uh, check out their record with the Assyrians, check out their record with the Babylonians. They were constantly having to come here. When this city was up and running, they were constantly having to come here to put down rebellions. And there's a high likelihood that you know these high-minded Jewish people who think that their god is the god of the entire world— uh, are going to end up doing the same towards you, and uh, it's not going to be good. And so the king sends his answer, also, again, still in Aramaic here, that, yeah, you know, um, I I had the letter read in my hearing, and, uh, yeah, we found that this city indeed from old has risen against kings and that rebellion and sedition have been made in it. And you could kind of think back to maybe, like, what he's reading about. Uh, remember, for example, when Sennacherib came to the throne, um back in the low 700s Hezekiah was not not only rebelled against him but he was the ringleader of that um uh, of like all the other cities in the area that also rebelled against him and uh also king Jehoiakim rebelled against uh Nebuchadnezzar right and that 
resulted in the second deportation to Babylon. And then Zedekiah again. Remember, he had all those emissaries from the from the from the surrounding kingdoms there. Um, you know, the, these guys. This is they're not only seditious, but they're ambitious and they stir up trouble. I agree. The city is not to be um, to be rebuilt. And so they take the copy of Artaxerxes' letter and they bring it quickly. It says, in haste to the Jews at Jerusalem and by force and power make them cease. And they are not allowed to continue work on the temple or on the city that is surrounding the temple. And again, now here we have uh, the, the resumptive repetition. And it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So all that stuff that I just delineated, right? The letter to Artaxerxes and then the letter uh, back from Artaxerxes, all that takes place in a sequence. And now when you get to this verse, it goes back to the reign of Darius. And the text clarifies that it's his second year. So that would be 520 BC. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, I believe um, the the pro- some of the prophets we've been reading recently are interestingly mentioned here. Uh, this is the time of Haggai and Zechariah uh, prophesying to the Jews who were in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of the God of Israel. Uh, we also have Zerubbabel and Yeshua, who are both um, mentioned in uh, those works, and uh, they arise and begin to rebuild the house of God that is in Jerusalem, so to continue the work that was done on them, right? because Darius is allowing it to happen again. And uh, and the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. Uh, then then we um, we get a challenge to this, or they get a challenge to this. And this is a guy named Tatanai, and he's identified as the governor or the the pachat of the province beyond the river. And remember, we've noted that that beyond the river is the kind of official name for this uh, this satrapy, actually, as it would technically be called. And um, interestingly, there is a Babylonian tablet dating actually very specifically to June 5th, 502 BC. So it's just a little bit later than this, uh, like 18 years or so, um, that speaks, that references the slave of Tatani, um, who is there in that tablet called Pachat of Ebirnari, that is the governor of beyond the river. So this very same guy is mentioned in that tablet. Um, that tablet's been known for a while. Uh, it was published in 1944 in the Journal of Near Eastern Studies by A.T. Olmsted. And I like it because it's a mercifully short article. It's one page long, if I remember correctly. Um, but yeah, so this guy comes and, you know, he, he's just asking questions, <laughs> right? But we all know what that's about. Who gave you a decree to build this house and to finish this structure? And, uh, and, and oh, and also, uh, what, what are the names, again, of the people participating in the building of this? And, um, you know, and you know that this guy's not going to do great things with this information, this guy and his associates here. Uh, but we also know, learn that um, God assisted them in some way. It says that the eye of God was on the elders of the Jews in this, um, in that in the meantime, before the answer didn't come back, these people were actually unable to stop the building of the temple. Uh, so, uh, meanwhile, Tatanai does send Darius a letter. He he and his associates 
And uh, so they give the report to Darius the king, all peace. Be it known that uh, to the king that we went to the province of Judah, to the house of the great God. It is being built with huge stones. Timber is laid in the walls. The work goes on diligently and prospers in their hands. Then we asked those elders and spoke to them, who gave you a decree to build this house and to finish this structure? And uh, here's what they told us. We are the servants of the God of heaven and earth, and we're building the house that was built many years ago, which a great king of Israel built and finished. That would be Solomon, of course. Because our fathers had angered the God of heaven, he gave them into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, who destroyed this house and carried away the people to Babylonia. So again, that's what they're, uh, they're, this guy's like, hey, I asked them and this is what they told me. However, continuing what they told me, they told me that in the first year uh, of Cyrus, king of Babylon, he made a decree that the house of God should be rebuilt and that all the vessels of silver, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple, should be returned to them. And indeed, Cyrus did that, and they were delivered into the hands of Sheshbazar, um, whom uh, whom Cyrus made governor. And he said to him, take the vessels, put them in the temple that's in Jerusalem, and let the house of God be rebuilt on the site. Then um, Tatanai says, this Sheshbazar came and laid the foundation of the house of God, and from that time until now, it has been in building and is not yet finished. And so if it seems good to the king, you know, not to tell you what to do, your majesty, uh, but let search be made once again in the royal archives um, there, there in Babylon to see whether, in fact, Cyrus did issue such a decree um, for, the rebuild, for the rebuilding of this house of God in Jerusalem. And let the king send us his pleasure in the matter. And then he waited, just like we'll have to wait until tomorrow, because that's where we leave off today in Ezra. All right, let's go now to Psalm 145. And I don't always mention this when we come across them, but this is a complete acrostic psalm. So as a way, as it's laid out in English, each verse it begins, we should say, with a different letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So, okay, so it is a, a song of praise, and a song of praise it is. I will extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is Yahweh, and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. I told you that this is uh, that this is a psalm of praise, and. I don't know. One thing that kind of strikes me as I read this psalm is that that just saying that stuff about God, like it can kind of like wash in one ear and out the other, right? Like just saying, I extol you, I bless your name, and, and uh, every day I will bless you, things like that, right? Um, but I know that like sometimes um, when I praise God, when I'm seeking to incorporate praise into my prayer, uh, that it's it could be like, Lord, thank you for this, and, th- and my and my my praise for him is essentially like thank you for doing a b and c which is certainly a legitimate form of praise but i just want to say that like saying these sorts of things to god and meaning them is a very biblical form of praise and so like when was the last time that you prayed like that i will extol you my god and king and bless your name forever and ever every day i bless you and praise your name forever and ever great is 
Yahweh and greatly to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. Like, when is the last time you prayed like that? And you might be like, well, that kind of sound, doesn't sound like there's a lot of substance to it. Well, it's got enough substance to be in a psalm. So, you know, I think that stuff like that is kind of important to remember. Um, so not, it turns out here that not only is David concerned with uh, he himself praising the Lord, uh, but 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 proclaiming God's work, saying these things to future generations. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works I will meditate. Okay, so I want to know this stuff so that other generations that come after me, my children and their children, will know it. Because if I don't know it and I don't meditate it and I don't love it, then how can I expect them to? But indeed, I want, and not just for their good, not just but but also for the renown of God, right? For the glory of God in future generations. I want them to be people who can also know this and speak of this. So he says, they shall speak of your might, of the might of your awesome deeds, and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. And then once again, words of words of praise to God. Yahweh is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He is good to all, his mercy over all that he has made. Um, and I like the way it says here, all your works shall give thanks to you, O Yahweh. All your works, right? Usually works are like the things he does. But you know what? We are also the works of his hands. And all of creation is the work of God's hands. And to the extent that we praise him, and to the extent we might say that the stars sing the glory of God, right? Even being able to like, recount like all the things in this world and saying these are your works that's a mighty thought to have about god right and 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 their right disposition is to praise you and uh, all your saints shall bless you they shall speak of the glory of your kingdom to and tell of your power There's, get the feeling that this is somebody who's excited about this stuff it's not just somebody who's telling it because they have to to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. Then notice that the second half of verse 13 is actually in brackets here. And the reason for that is that in the Masoretic text, that is the Hebrew text that is typically used uh, for um, Old Testament translation, that bracketed section is actually not there, the, uh, that Yahweh is faithful in all his works and kind in all his works. However, other ancient translations of uh, this psalm, uh, particularly the Septuagint, the Greek translation, as well as the Syriac version, as well as one of the Dead Sea Scrolls, that would be 11Q Psalm A, all have this line in it, which just, and here's another handy hint, right? This other, this is the noon strophe. So this is the um the these these are the the two lines of the acrostic that begin with the hebrew equivalent of our letter n and without those it's missing so it's highly likely that that's actually originally in there and that for some reason it ended up getting uh nixed from the uh from from the kind of traditional hebrew uh text of the psalms okay uh but um i love verses 14 and 16 
talking about like God providing our needs by upholding all who are falling, raising all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you to give them their food in due season, right? Like we look to God to meet our needs, to open your hand. You satisfy the desire of every living thing, right? Everything that needs has needs, uh, those needs are met by you. Um, Yahweh is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. He is near to all who call on him, but note the caveat to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him and hears also hears their cry and saves them. Yahweh preserves all who love him, but the wicked he will destroy. And so again, what do I return to a God who needs nothing? My mouth will speak the praise of Yahweh and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. All right, folks, let's go over now to Revelation chapter 11. So here, uh, remember that we're still in a little bit of an interlude here in the trumpets. Um, and, um, and John tells us, I was given a measuring rod like a staff, and automatically our minds go to Ezekiel 40, right? Uh, especially given what he's about to be measuring. Of course, the difference being there that it is the angelic messenger who measures the temple and the city, whereas here, uh, John's going to be told to measure the temple himself. So he's given um, a measuring rod and is told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there, um, but do not measure the court outside the temple. Uh, leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. Uh, now, there's there's aspects of this that just make me want to remind you that our impulse when we read apocalyptic literature, and here especially we're talking about Revelation, of course, is to want to, to, want to pull away from the symbolic nature of the text, right? To not look for it in terms of what it represents, but to try to start to read it as if it's some kind of historical narrative. And I think we need to be very careful with that here. Now, uh, but we should also maybe be careful with being careful with that. And what I mean by that is that, like, there's no uh, rule that says that an apocalyptic text with plenty of imagery in it, like think when we're like down in the thick of it in Daniel or something, right, that, that it can't dip out and suddenly give us like a very straightforward reading of the future, right? Like that's, there's nothing that says that that can't happen. So I don't know if you can settle disputes as to what is being referred to here just on the basis of a sheer appeal to genre. But if we are acknowledging the symbolic nature of the literature, and there certainly is a good amount of symbolism here, then I think we do have to be careful about um, about this pull that is always within us just simply because of the way that we are used to reading texts. Uh, that, that pull that says, get me out of the symbolism. If I can find an escape hatch and turn this into something that's like literally happening in the future, even if it has to be, then I'll take it. Um, no, resist that and realize that, again, like, you should not underestimate the amount of 
uh, symbolism that apocalyptic is constructed from. And of course, I say that because the big one of the big debates here is that this is often regarded as a uh, actual temple that will address well, that will exist in Jerusalem in the future. And I discussed this a little bit when we talked about that final vision in the book of Ezekiel, which this, of course, um, at least bears a lot of similarity to. And, um, you know, I, I fall down on the symbolic view of it, that this is not describing something that will literally be rebuilt in the future. And when we were in Ezekiel, I said that, you know, very compelling for me is that imagery of the water flowing out of the temple uh, as well as, um, you know, a few other indicators. Of course, the weakness of that view being like, yeah, but it's so specific, right? There's all these rooms and stuff like that, and there's all these things that that priests are to do and everything. And if you're just saying like, like couldn't, couldn't if it's just going to be like a simple picture, can it just be a simple picture? Can it just be that? And would we expect that? Isn't the fact that there's so much detail an indication that it is indeed not a symbol, and to that, I would just say, I don't think so. And I don't think that's the way that's, that a lot of symbolism works. Yeah, sure, like brief symbolism. But on the other hand, let me ask you this. Is the Lord of the Rings trilogy, is that symbolism? I bet that you could describe what the Lord of the Rings symbolizes in about maybe a minute, right? But you said you've got these three hulking books. Why all that detail if it's just a symbol? You know what I'm saying? Like, it doesn't follow simply from the amount of detail that it is symbolism. So I think we need to keep that in mind, okay? And then I think we need to look at, like, the the, the pros and cons of each view. And so if we are saying that this foretells the literal rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem in the future— then, you know, what you're essentially saying is that sometime during the tribulation, perhaps right before Christ's return, there is an actual temple in Jerusalem where actual sacrifices are are being offered. Um, and, you know, and, and those who worship there, if the church has been raptured out, um, are, uh, are ethnic Israel, and then the court outside would be like uh, an area that's being overrun by unbelieving Gentiles, right? And you can see that, leave it out for it's given over to the nations and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. Um, But again, like, um, I'm not sure about that. And it's not just a matter of genre, although I think that is a strong argument, right? If you're reading a genre of literature, like if, if the Psalms, for example, suddenly had like, a narrative in the middle of one that would be very unusual and the same kind of thing goes with apocalyptic literature and especially the more heavy apocalyptic like we get in revelation because i think one thing we could say for sure is that this is a more developed type of apocalyptic than we see in the more mixed books like an ezekiel or like even like a daniel uh but also i think you actually have a stronger theological argument that uh, would suggest that such a literal reading would not make sense. I mean, you you would have to get such a view. The idea that there is a temple in the future that God's people are going to be worshiping in and that that will be a good thing, you, you kind of have to make that work with the theology of the rest of the New Testament, which not only 
uh, portrays the church as the temple. And so it's no problem seeing that temple imagery anywhere you you see it in, in prophecies as you know suggestive of either Christ himself or Christ as manifested in the church. Right, you see that in First Corinthians three sixteen through seventeen, Ephesians two eighteen through twenty two, First Peter two four through five, just to name a few places. Right, you see it here in Revelation. You see, um, like in chapter twenty one, for example, the New Jerusalem somehow is the people of God. It is the the bride, uh, which is itself depicted as like a massive holy of holies. Um, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a perfect cube, just like the Holy of Holies. And, uh, you know, there's a lot of temple imagery there. Um, and notice, notice too, that the dimensions of the new Jerusalem in, uh, in chapter 21, it's 12,000 stadia. Remember the number 12 symbolizing the people of God and the wall is 144 cubits, 12 times 12. And, you know, not only does the view that this is a literal temple rebuilt in the future kind of um, break that mold quite a bit. But again, you have to get it to jive theologically with the teachings of the sufficiency of Jesus's sacrifice and what Christ's sacrifice actually did. Even if you're going to try to salvage the view and make some kind of unconvincing argument like that these are just like memorial offerings or something to remember Jesus's sacrifice, like... Uh, I don't know. Like you don't see any of that going on in New Testament uh, worship of God. Uh, and on the other hand, you got to reckon with texts like Hebrews 10, 1 through 2, since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered year every year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin? And the only way to really salvage that, the view, I think, on theology like that, and again, this is not the only place that this that the New Testament talks like this, of Christ being the perfect and final sacrifice to end all sacrifices— um, especially atoning sacrifices, because go ahead and read Ezekiel. They're not just talking about like Thanksgiving offerings in there or like offerings given, made up upon the fulfillment of vows, okay? So rather, I think, you know, what we're seeing here is uh, the temple symbolizing something, uh, namely the people of God, okay? The temple, the altar, and those who worship there, okay? Uh, versus those in the outside court. Do not measure the outside court, but leave that out. And, you know, that that could be um, unbelievers, okay? Uh, that could be the, the outside world, those who have not fully embraced uh, faith in Christ. Although some people would want to note that those outer precincts, it's not like that's a place of rank pagan worship or anything, so maybe it's it's not to be viewed as a place where unbelievers dwell. Um, Tom Schreiner, in his uh, pretty brand spanking new Revelation commentary, at least at, at the time of my writing this, he suggests that the temple of God altar and those who worship there might be like the souls, right? Like the inner being, the um, the imperishable nature of those who know the Lord, whereas the outer court might symbolize like their physical bodies, 
which again, Revelation being a book written to a persecuted church would be given over to the trampling of the nations or something like that. And um, and indeed, note that the trampling does take place for 42 months. And do you remember that when we talked from about Daniel, about the time, times, and half a time? This uh, figure, this this time, which is kind of like a, 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 um, a symbolic length of time that indicates the amount of time that God's people are defeated by their enemies or seemingly defeated by their enemies and that they have to hold on. Um, 42 months, of course, being a, a one 12-month year plus two 12-month years plus half a year, six months. So 12 plus 24 plus six. And so that is a, a, a time, a year, times two years and half a time, a half of year. Okay, and then that the, the two witnesses then who go on to prophesy do this also for the same length of time spelled out a different way, okay, uh, that, that is in terms of days. Uh, so 360-year days, so 360 times 2, uh, 720 plus 360 plus 180, 1,260 days, okay? Um, now, what is the... The, the idea of measuring. And there's, uh, it's also, there's a lot of commentators um, who point to the fact that the measuring of, of some, something, especially like, you know, the place where God's people are, uh, seems to denote God's protection, that there is a measure of security, that you're, you measure something when God has acted decisively for his people, put them in a place where they are safe, where they are cared for, and it's like, okay, let's go measure it. And you see this in Jeremiah 31, 38. You see it in um, Revelation 21, 15 through 17. But I think a, a pretty good text to illustrate this is Zechariah 1, 16, which we read not too long ago. So Zechariah uh, 1, 16 says, Therefore, thus says Yahweh, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy, my house shall be built in it, declares Yahweh of hosts, and the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. So again, God is here and you are safe with him is the idea. Uh, you also kind of get that idea in Zechariah 2, 1 through 2. And so again, here the idea is the temple, the altar, the people are measured. Um, and whereas that outside, the court outside is go given over to the nations and is trampled. So that's kind of how I understand that. Um, then uh, we go on and we read about two witnesses, okay, who are called, who who prophesy again for that that time period of the, the period of the suffering of the saints, 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth, which of course is mourning uh, garb. That's what you wear when you're mourning. And they are described in verse four as... Uh, the two olive trees and the two lampstands, okay, these are both olive trees and lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And um, it's uh, pretty much beyond question that John is drawing this from that vision of the lampstand and the two olive trees that we also read in Zechariah chapter 4, four uh, verse 14. And it isn't only the fact that there's a lampstand present and olive trees present, but also note the quotation of Zechariah 4.14, where it says, the, where God says, or the, the, the 
angelic guide says, these are the two anointed ones who stand by the Lord of the whole earth. Again, these are the lamps, the, the olive trees, the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And um, the, we, of course, the weird thing is, is that in that vision, there's one lampstand. And I, I think that's fairly easy to account for why there are two here, because it's seeking to, um, it's seeking to maintain the symbolism of the two. And I think it's as simple as that. And there, right, the identification of the trees that feed the lampstand with their oil is what? Well, one olive tree represents Zerubbabel, rep representing the kingly line, and the other one represents the uh, uh, Joshua as the priestly line, and their olive, is, their olive oil is what is giving fuel to the lampstand that is giving the light of life um, in this redeemed community. And I and and uh, indeed, Revelation is also pretty heavy on that kind of uh, on that kind of idea. The combination of uh, the priestly attributes of believers, right, that we are priests, and also the royal attributes of believers. So in chapter one, verse six, right, it notes that he ha that Christ has made us a kingdom, priests to his God and Father, and um, uh, and and so there you have the combination of the priestly imagery and the uh, and the kingly imagery, and then in chapter five, verse ten, when John is standing in heaven, remember one of the words of praise to God again. He ransomed people from every tribe, language, people, and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. So there is the king, the, the, the kingly aspect of the people of God and the priestly aspect of the kingdom of God. And then in Revelation 20, verse 6, when we are in that um, millennial reign of Christ, blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. So the being a priest and reigning is essentially what it means to be a believer, to be those two things. Um, so uh, I won't go through this line by line, um, but the two witnesses, as I say, prophesy for 1,260 days, which is the same length of time that the uh, that 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 the part that part of the city is to be trampled. They're clothed in sackcloth. They bear witness to the truth. That is, we do believers do, in a way patterned after Moses and Elijah, right? And note that um, you have both um, both figures become kind of prophetic uh, prophetic hopes also in the Old Testament. You have the um, <clears throat> the prophet like Moses from Deuteronomy eighteen. Uh, becomes an expected eschatological figure. You have Elijah returning before the coming of the day of the Lord in Malachi 4, 5 through 6. And so like very Elijah-like, right? Fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. Also, if anyone harms them, this is how he's doomed to be killed. They have the, he, they have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. Remember, Elijah had the had had that as part of his ministry, right? To have famine and then to to pray to the Lord that God would send rain, um, and also to strike the earth with every kind of plague, very Moses-like. And um, 
but when they have finished their testimony, okay, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit, and this is the first we are getting of a beast in Revelation, and let us recall from the book of Daniel that beasts typically represent worldly powers that are also somewhat demonic in nature, okay? Uh, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit makes war on them, conquers them, kills them, and they are exposed in the street of the great city that is symbolically called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. So this is what has become of Jerusalem, right? It's become a place that's as good as Sodom or or of, as as Egypt was, both places that ended up being subject to the wrath of God. And for three and a half days, there we have that three and a half symbolism of time again, right? Uh, time times and half the times. Um, the peoples from all of the world gaze at their dead bodies, refuse to let them be um, placed in a tomb. So, right, that, that, that they, they are a spectacle to this world. And those who dwell on their earth, um, like, are, are super happy about the fact about when when they are defeated, when they are, they're super excited. They're exchanging presents because um, because the prophets, okay, the the people of God, had been a torment to those who dwell on earth. They don't they don't like hearing of their sin. They don't like being called to repentance. But after that time is over, after that three and a half days, the breath of life from God enters them, and they stand on their feet and all witness it. And then there is that loud voice saying, just like it had said to John, come up here. And they go up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watch them. And at that hour, there is judgment. Um, A great earthquake, a tenth of the city falls, 7,000 people killed in a great earthquake, and the rest are terrified and give glory to the God of heaven. Notice here that there is the notion that witnessing their martyrdom and how they die and how they and how they are willing to die for Jesus is a testimony to some and inspires some to repentance. One might think of how martyrdom ends up functioning in the early church. One might think of Paul, right? Like the witness to Steve, uh, of Stephen and what that where that eventually um, and his execution and where that eventually leads him. And then finally, you know, so that's the second woe. And then the third woe, okay, which is the the final trumpet, which is soon to come. Uh, so the seventh angel blows his trumpet, and it tells us that there are loud voices in heaven saying, and once again, here we are to where we at, were at the end of the seals. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ, and he shall reign forever. So we are once again at the end. So that that whole scene that we just looked at, which I said I wasn't going to read, but I all but read, <laughs> um, is the portrait of 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 how things unfold during this age when it is our job to bear witness to Jesus. Um, here we have the the twenty four elders who sit on their thrones. Once again, they are present. Right, we're back in that first scene again. And once again, they are falling on their faces and worshiping God, just like they did when John was first there and the lamb presented himself. And then we saw this in chapter 7, verse 11 as well. And uh, their pl- and their hymn of praise once again reflects what we would expect at the 
final consummation, which again, I'm saying that this symbolizes once again as the second time that this cycles through. Um, So we give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you've taken your great power and begun to reign. Okay, so now the Lord has begun to reign. He is now fully reigning, and there is no ambiguity to that. Although the nations raged, Okay, the, the dead have been judged. The time for the ju- dead ha- uh, to be judged has come, and, um, and, your, and your servants have been rewarded, the prophets and the saints, and the destroyers of the earth have been destroyed. And then finally, once again, we see those, um, uh, those signs in heaven that we have seen. Uh, we saw it initially when God appeared, then we saw it again at the end of the... Uh, the set of of seals, and again, as I said, each time an element is added. So when we first saw it, it was just flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder, and then, um, and then the next time we saw it, it was peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. And now here we have flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. All right, everyone, that's it for today. As always, thanks for being with me, and as always, I look forward to being with you tomorrow. And until then, keep reading Scripture, take care, and bye-bye.